brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm going to be talking to Rob Rinder, a barrister turned writer and broadcaster who is known for being television's Judge Rinder, as well as for his sizzling salsa on Strictly Come Dancing. In 2020, Rob was awarded an MBE for services to Holocaust education, following his widely acclaimed BBC series, The Holocaust, My Family and Me, a documentary which helped Jewish families discover the full truth about what happened to their relatives during the war. His first novel, The Trial, has just been published and it's been described as a ridiculously immersive whodunit and in the best tradition of John Mortimer's Rumpole series. And I'm so excited to be speaking with him today. Rob Rinder, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello, love. What a delight to be here. Um, Rob's just found some Dettol and sprayed it. Oh, it's my Chanel number five, as we're going to come to probably towards the end of the programme. But we there is a waft of cleanliness in this tiny room, which is probably asphyxiating you, but gifting me so much joy and memory and happiness. Listen, you. you're the guest, so you get to spray as much as you like. I think we shouldn't go mad. I think I've got just the right amount. <laughs> little sense memory of my clean house, my childhood, and being present with you in a clean space. We're Love all it. happy. Um, I absolutely loved the book. I gasped out loud. I laughed. Um, I really, really like thrillers. I got into them during lockdown and I thought it was so gripping. I didn't, I couldn't work out who'd done it at all or what had happened till, you know, I didn't guess any of it. The characters were so three-dimensional. They were really vulnerable. They were really funny. So yeah, I, I absolutely going to recommend it to everyone. Um, is there a British thing? I'm not sure if it's British or whoever it is, where as you're talking, I'm literally sort of trying to shrink in my chair. Yeah. I'm lost protruding parts of my body to cringe with. As I think, no, stop saying kind things. I could much better cope with you sort of somehow getting out the the red pen going you missed a bit I'm yeah, delighted I think that I'm the same that. it's very hard to receive yeah. a barrage of compliments ah. but you know I want to give them and you deserve you. them that means the world to me good do you know what's really one of the words you said in the introduction was the word immersive I'm especially delighted by that word as we'll hopefully come on to discuss in the book you know I really wanted people to feel that they were invited into the world of chambers and to court one of the old Bailey through the lived experience or the shoes of you know people who haven't been there and you can only go there if you're a barrister and you can only be in chambers if you've had that chance and so few people do so that really mattered to me that you felt that you understood the bricks in the building and the sense of the various emotional and political dynamics at play at chambers like John Mortimer in uh, Rumpole and, um, you know, This Life, if you ever watched that in the 90s, oh, which yeah. was the programme or the book that inspired me to become a barrister pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, I did. I did absolutely feel that. I think it's partly because Adam... So the book tells the story of Adam, who's a young Jewish trainee barrister. He's the pupil to the brilliantly arrogant Jonathan, who I want to discuss shortly. Um, So yeah, so Jonathan is his pupil master. Jonathan's brilliantly arrogant. He's got this bouffant hair. He's having all these affairs. Um, And they're given the job of defending a man called Jimmy Knight at the Old Bailey. And he's been accused of poisoning a very popular and media savvy police officer called Grant Cliveden. And what I really loved about it is Adam's got this secret that you kind of drip feed throughout the book. And I love how you've got those two strands running at the same time because it makes Adam a really vulnerable character. So there's something of the underdog about him that I really liked. And I think that's partly why it is so immersive. You're going in as a newbie with him. So although... 
he's you know taking the training very seriously he's obviously very good at it he's hot-headed and he's um he's got something to learn and um, he can't let in his nemesis georgina who i also love <laughs> um but i really felt like i was with him and i think it's because he's so inviting as a character i think everyone can identify with him and he's got this real vulnerability about him how much of you is in adam quite a bit again i'm really grateful for you not just taking the time but to have responded to adam in that way he, i mean he's a fish out of water and, you know, I don't know anybody in, you know, any profession that's really good at what they do that doesn't feel a little bit like that. There's a moment when you do a job. I mean, certainly I found myself doing serious, as if there are unserious, but, you know, certainly public prosecutions of some uh, importance where the consequences were, you know, really of, of critical significance. Where people would ask me questions, I'd be looking around going, what are you asking me for? Ask my mum. You know, there's never that moment you don't feel like an imposter. And the real essential dynamic here is the fact that he comes from a working class community like me, despite the fact that people, when they meet me, think, goodness me, you sound like you've been mugged by a Mitford, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I was my own special creation when I was sort of four and sounded like this, partly oppositionally to the way I was growing up, but always felt this sort of outsiderness. And even now, no matter where I am, I'm always slightly surprised to be invited to the party to be asked questions about anything of any significance. No matter how much I learn or achieve, I'll always feel, I think, a sense I'm not quite doing it right. At the same time, having an instinct, sometimes they're quite good at it, like you say, but also really passionate. And I think more than anything else, even in a whodunit, and as you say, you know, at the heart of this is the world, I think it's really helpful not just helpful, it's essential, I would say. And I think any reader feels the same. It doesn't matter how good the various ingredients of the whodunit are, you're not going to invest in the story unless you feel emotionally connected, believe in, and more importantly, somehow can empathise with the central protagonist. So that means a lot to me. You asked your question because a lot of the elderly were saying, a lot of him is me. Do you think that fear, not fear necessarily, but it ties in with one of my questions, actually. Yeah. That feeling of imposter syndrome, which I have too, and I know exactly what you mean, do you think it's actually valuable because you don't become complacent? Well, it stops you being a monster. Yeah. Of course. I mean, it, it, it's the word imposter syndrome is problematic. I think what we're actually trying to do is identify a sense where you question. You have, as a plays about it, lots of the great works of literature so-called, but great nevertheless, are really where at the central moment of the story, somebody is confronted by a critical moment, they have doubt about it. Now, who in your world that's been a great boss, in whatever you do, or a great artist, or whoever you, in whatever field they practice in, hasn't had that crushing moment of doubt, or sort of found themselves as I have, you know, the recipient of this disproportionate level of luck, you know, to do a job asking questions in a podcast about books that you love, to find myself writing a novel about my world and getting paid for it. I exist in a world constantly thinking, not just that I'm not good enough, perhaps, but also that what a delightful day I've spent, for example, here talking to you. You know, the world does balance itself out. Nature does that in a big sense. So I'm so happy and so delighted with what I'm doing, um, there's going to be some karmic thwack on its way. Yeah, there has to be. There's always light there's, and shade, isn't like, there? Well, no, it's, it's actually the world's going to redress the balance by doing something awful. Oh, that's, OK, that's the that's, feeling. That's one something thing. bad's going to happen. Right, that's one element. Okay. The other thing is, you know, as you say, I, I think that most people who are good at what they do 
either internalize their doubt, in which case sometimes that can manifest itself as bad management, bullying. Often people who are the least internally confident, the least capable at what they're doing, perhaps people who are, you know, really uh, choked by a degree of being insecure, let's say, it can emerge in kind of socially violent ways in the workplace. But in most instances where you have doubt about why you're there, what you're doing, it's kind of the driving, motivating force that keeps you interested, invested, and sort of constantly curious and above all else prevents you from being monstrous. And that ties in with, so there's a character in it called Bobby. Oh, I love who, that you've got Bobby. He is a really key character a to person. me. Sorry. Oh, really? All characters in this novel are, what's the legal phrase? Coincident or incidental. Anyway, he's noble. They're not going to sue. Well, he's a good character anyway, so everyone will want to be him. Yeah. So Bobby Thompson KC, he's a lawyer within the same chambers. And he came to Adam's school and did a talk. And that's one of the things, or the thing, that inspired Adam to go into law. So he appears at really key moments and he's a big character for me in it, even though he's not actually featured in it that heavily, because he's like a guiding light for Adam and he sometimes says things that Adam doesn't really want to hear and he has to choose a more difficult road but you know it's the right one but there's a bit where Adam says to Bobby do you ever stop being scared when you're going into court and Bobby says no because you're fighting for someone's freedom and you should be scared and without fear it's just theatrics it's like an actor doing a play I really really loved that bit such an interesting thing that you you spotted and I'm so completely thrilled about that you know the number of times people ask me how do you defend somebody when you know they're guilty the answer is you don't if they tell you they're guilty and you can't defend them as a non-guilty plea anymore you know but nobody really ever asks what's it like to defend somebody you believe to be innocent or what's it like to defend somebody who you believe may have committed an offence but there are a variety of different reasons why they found themselves on the opposite side of the table from you and the pressure of that and the sense that you are the only person standing between the individual and the state and their loss of liberty and their family have invested every facet of trust in you and the instant you lose what Bobby describes, and he's a kind of, he is a single character, but he's also a machination of a variety of different heroes of mine at the bar. The instant you lose that, you lose something absolutely, I'm going to say spiritually essential to do the work. And actually that did happen to me, which is why um, I found myself in random series of coincidences on television. I didn't apply, but around the time that Judge Rinder happened, I was doing some serious cases around the world here and in the UK. I'd lost that sense of fear. And what I mean by that is I'd lost the will to care. That conversation with Bobby that you're referring to is such an essential moment in the book. I'm so delighted you noticed it. It's a really key moment. Mm. It taps into, well, there are so many bits in it that were really eye-opening in terms of why people want to go into law, which isn't something that you read about that much. Mm. So I've read a few courtroom books, but it's often so focused on the ins and outs of the case, and it's often so focused on the victim or the defendant, or maybe it focuses on on the lawyer's personal lives, like they're all having affairs or they've got really... But you've really tapped into something fundamental about... And I know, I also, I know from reading other stuff about you how passionate you are 
about law, you know, and about the reasons that people go into it. But I thought it really, really tapped into quite fundamental questions and answers about why the justice system exists and why it can be corrupt. And it really made me think, I've done jury service and I remember it really clearly. And I, How did you feel at the end of it? I know you're supposed to be interviewing me because I never get the chance. One of the things is not like America. You know, you can actually ask jury members why they came to their decisions. Here we can't. I've never done jury service. So whenever I meet a friend or anybody who's um, been on a jury, it's such a rich opportunity to ask, well, what was it like? I found it completely fascinating. Mm. And it was a reasonably benign case, so it wasn't too upsetting. Not to the defendant. Well, exactly. And that that's it. You only see it from your point of view. And there was an element of, oh, you know, what's going to happen next? Mm. But then you realise that you're instrumental in what happens next. I remember it so clearly. Mm-hmm. I remember the other people I was with. I remember finding out a lot about DNA. And how did it feel at the end? It felt frustrating because I didn't feel... I think I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Uh-huh. And oh, I think God, I wanted be a to nightmare be a <laughs> juror. Juror <laughs> yeah. number four. Do not look at juror number four. <laughs> no, I, I felt really frustrated that we couldn't be 100% sure. And I felt I had a feeling of it so being you can, unfinished. You convicted? No, we didn't convict. So do you feel like justice is done? Well, now I've read the book, I suppose justice was done because. in the sense that we couldn't be sure. Right. But I didn't have a feeling of satisfaction because I think finding someone not guilty when you're not sure must feel different from finding them guilty when you are sure. Well, that's forgetting the principle why sure is there in the first place. You know, what's the value of liberty? It's everything. So the whole system is based on the idea that it's better that, you know, 11 guilty humans go free than one innocent person should lose her liberty. I mean, getting serious for a second, I've worked across the world, but just imagine this scenario for a second, right? You have friends, colleagues who work in this field, but imagine you live in a community, right? And you're not somebody of privilege. This is a real situation. You're very often in parts of America, depending on what state, you're a person of color and you're accused of an offense, right? And uh, your Adam Green character, to bring it back to the book, okay, has got 10 cases as a public defender no funding whatsoever, and you've been accused of attempted murder, right? It's not you. They've taken DNA badly. There's an identification, but, you know, there's any number of various factors why they've come to grab you. You may have been arrested wrongly for whatever it is, right? The public defender, an Adam Green character straight out of university, is there to defend you. And um, he says to you, "Um, look, here's the deal. I've spoken to the prosecutor. Here's the thing. We don't have money to test this evidence. You've got no money. I've got 50 cases. So I've spoken to her. And uh, what we're going to do is going to do a deal. It's not going to be attempted robbery, which is 15 years. We're going to go just for straightforward robbery. It's five. You can go for a trial. I hear what you say. You didn't do it. But, you know, this is a mostly white jury around here. Now, imagine that had happened to one person. You know, you've taken that, by the way. You've taken that deal. We don't have plea dealing in this country. Imagine that had happened to one person you know or a friend of a friend who you trusted and loved and valued. Now imagine that that happens as commonplace in your community. What does that do to not just your relationship with justice, but your sense of value or your sense that you have any democratic agency? Posh was saying, yeah. your belief in the society you come from. 
well, it's all just crumbled it's down. Over. You think everyone was against you. Cool. Sure. And that's the point of this. Well, that's really what Jimmy faces in the book. Right. He's offered, he's been told again and again plead. by Jonathan, plead guilty. Yeah. But he won't. Yeah. I mean, there is a, a, a bigger kind of issue and an overarching narrative at stake there. And there's a subplot. I mean, there's several subplots. The original tension of this book, it started life really with me wanting to write, insofar as I was able to, a non-fiction book about three cases I had done, high-profile cases, that had ended in acquittals, where I was confident that the defendant was guilty. And they come from different backgrounds. And it was about the different ways in which society treated them, the legal profession, etc. But for a variety of legal reasons, it was impossible. So I love Agatha Christie and I love that genre. And I wanted to bring to life exactly as you're describing that life of being a pupil and, you know, doing five cases. It's a bit sort of old fashioned in the sense that Adam's really in a world that I was in, say, 20 years ago. He'd arrive at court, you know, no mobile phones. You'd open the wicket at Bow Street Magistrates, which is now a block of flats. And you'd shout out, is there a John here? And then the next person would come to the wicket. And, you know, you see those cases or you hear about them as he reports them to his mum, you know, and you'd perhaps uh, deal with a case where a shoplifter had pleaded and he'd got a very low fine. And as a thanks, he'd gone out and immediately stole your box of chocolates. All of those things, you know, would happen. I wanted people to be invited into that world. Um, but originally I'd started this journey, sorry, people get really upset when you use that word, trying to write about what happened uh, in three cases I did where there were acquittals, but where the person was guilty. And one of the subplots, if not the central subplot in this book, sort of demonstrates, albeit in a kind of fun and high-paced way, exactly what you're describing. What happens when you come in and you've got lots of money and your senior barrister is very excited about that because he or she's going to, you know, be the beneficiary of that. And how are you treated differently? And you see that play out. And that definitely is a thing, and especially a thing nowadays, where if you don't have money and there's no legal aid to pay for your defence, you'll see references to the unused material in the book, yes. which we have to explain, and all the various procedurals. You don't get paid to read that. Lawyers don't. So just imagine in a case where you're accused of a really serious crime and your lawyer gets boxes and boxes on a schedule somewhere and a list of stuff. It says phone messages. They're not served. They're not given to you because otherwise you have to be paid to read them. Yeah. Now, just think about that for a second. In that messaging nowadays, think about your WhatsApp messaging or whatever it is, however you communicate, there may be something that's of real value. But the under-resourced police officer in the case has to go through all of them and make that determination. Is it relevant to the prosecution? In other words, does it prove the prosecution's case or undermine it? There are 10,000 pages. A police officer just doesn't have the resources to do that. So that means there's a chance of injustice. So it requires a lawyer who's really invested and passionate, prepared to do it for free to go through that yeah. stuff. Unless you've got a ton load of money. In which case, you get a different service, right? Yeah. I'm not going to say. It's, I'm it's not going to say. It's a delicious outcome. Sort of, except um, I hope well, people take the time to read the epilogue. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they will. Yeah. Uh, well, let's move on to your object. Oh, sorry. Um, no, no, no. Um, I just want to hang out with you and talk I about love books. It. I know. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, the first object you yeah. brought with you. So this is somewhere you were happy. And my answer was, and I really mean it, it's wherever my friends are. And it's really true. I, 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 why am I bristling? I always ask that question when I'm having a sort of reaction, a bit like when you're talking about my book. Why does that make me feel a bit like eek? 
it's because it's an honest, open, kind answer. And for some reason, it's harder, isn't it, to say? I guess I just want to be earnest or feel like sort of you've died and woken up in the middle of Pollyanna. Although I love that, (laughs) the Hayley Mills film. But it's really true. I just had my birthday recently and I didn't want to do anything. So my friend said, that's fine. I'll just come round to yours and we'll just do nothing together. Or my friend has a place in Ireland that um, he's built himself with his own hands and it's just in a little copse um, just off uh, what's about 20 minute 30 minute drive from Cork and it's beautiful because he has a natural gift for beauty we don't do anything the best places in the world are always you know in the home and in the presence of people who love you and value you unconditionally and are delighted by your joy and want to be alongside you in it I think that's kind of the way we should think about assessing friendship I mean we're we curate that, I think, a little bit by these old adages, which I think are rather outdated or one-dimensional, you know. Oh, I love so-and-so. She'd be there for me in the middle of the night. You think, well, well so would the emergency services. And there's also a special brand of human that will, or not that special, who will come and inculcate themselves or crowbar themselves into your drama because yeah. they want a speaking part. And actually, that's important, but that kind of goes without saying with friendship. What really matters is when the joy comes... Or the good thing. Who can you phone first? They're going to go, yes. I mean, that's the stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. Isn't it? I don't know. And I just, that is always my happiest. My happy places, let's say, are memories and always connected to the people and then the place. So, Do you find the same with writing that you can write anywhere? It's more about the thing that feeling really into the thing that you're working on. The structure, it depends. So the structure of this, I had to write very much in my own study and away I even had to move certain books out the way because, you know, you just don't want to be looked down on by Solzhenitsyn. And I always <laughs> imagine him smoking a fag. Oh, go on then. And this is called The Trial. So I always had sort of Kafka go, mm-hmm, really? <laughs> <laughs> so it was that. But no, actually, I wrote most, uh, I'm going to confess this up seeing as I've wrote it. I wrote mo- most of my columns um, on the loo, on my iPhone, not entirely on the loo. Um, the reason the iPhone is a really important thing for, for that sort of writing as opposed to this is because um, you want to retain and maintain a chatty complexion yeah. to the sound of the work. And what's really interesting to me and has been a fascinating thing during the process of this, let's say, is that when I sit down at a computer at a desk, I feel myself becoming incredibly loyally. And the type of writing that I did for, you know, 15, 16, 17 years, even now, when I write to production companies, I find myself going point one, point two. It was disappointing to discover. <laughs> but there was no tea. Precisely. Yeah. I, mean, I would never say that. No, I know. You know, but that sort of thing. Sure, yeah. You know, we will be mindful about it. It just become, I feel like, you know, it, it becomes a submission. So there's something about sitting at a desk yeah. that it makes it more formal. Totally. Yeah. I'm literally writing uh, a litigation letter expressing my disappointment in the 10 different ways. <laughs> yeah, in other words, character comes to die and sort of angry letter comes to live. Yeah. Um, well, let's move on to this next object, which yeah. I think you have got with you. Oh, is, oh yes. I, oh, 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 go on. Go ask the question. Yeah. This is, okay. This uh, is but, so fun. It's like a dinner party game with people that you, you know, whose dinner party you've been invited to, who you like. Oh. That's really nice. Because I often get invited to dinner parties as the sort of gay plus one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is something you should have thrown away, but I don't think you should have thrown it away. And that's often the case with this object when people bring it in. They go, actually, this is really important to me. So yeah. I answered this with no difficulty whatsoever. My weird, creepy hairbrush. And, you know, you're a writer um, and a podcaster. How do you describe this? So it looks like it's held together with fraying gaffer tape. Yeah. It's 
looks like it's seen better days. It, I would have thought it was a paintbrush initially. It hasn't got any bristles on it anymore. I assume there initially were bristles. It's a flat black... I guess it, it was once a hairbrush. It was once a hairbrush. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the kind of... It's like being at the birth of a new moment in uh, obsessive disorder of some description. Uh, but one that, you know, it's so easy to be glib about other people's connections to superstition. And I never judge anyone despite, you know, people coming to know who I am. But years of being at the bar will rid you of that sort of thing. But I certainly would have considered myself to not really have many hang-ups or any significant phobias or, you know, the type of things that perhaps weigh you down from making decisions where you might otherwise be anxious. I'm always about, yeah, let's just go ahead and do it. Then I try to do various things without my weird creepy hairbrush. I realise it's absolutely, this is a codependent relationship. Well, how did it start, though? So, so how did you know you needed it? I start <laughs> in any kind of compulsive relationship, let's say. Our superstition, which is very important. This is where this sits. It sits in the hemisphere of my brain, which is emotionally connected to superstition or ritual. So... Um, in 2003, we went to, I went to Sierra Leone as part of uh, British Council's, it was a mission to really sort of talk to young people who had been demilitarized. And it was part of that time, my head of chambers was the chief war crimes prosecutor there. Serious work and you know, it really established an international law for the first time, surprisingly, what a child soldier was. It set a international precedent. Now, at that stage, when you would arrive in Freetown, which was challenging to get to, there was two ways from that peninsula to get to the mainland of um, Freetown, either in a hydrofoil, which would often sink, or a helicopter, which would often go down. Mostly there were survivors, I'm told, but, you know, there was no windows on this thing. And I think they were, at the time, Ukrainian pilots who, you know, just get through the day because it's quite boring going to and fro for 20 minutes would be relatively inebriated. And, you know, I was trying to be cool, so I pretended I wasn't afraid of flying. You'd leave the plane and you'd be given a wood, it was a stick, really, as your boarding pass for this helicopter. And on the floor... I found this hairbrush and I lived. And so since then, <laughs> I was so convinced that it was over that this hairbrush has been in every pocket of every interview I've ever done, every television appearance I've ever made. And it even got sewed into the back, if you look really carefully, of my sound thing when I did the cha-cha, which is when people look at my faces, you know, apparently I made lots of faces doing that dance. It may be because... Um, this bit of the weird, creepy hairbrush had entered somewhere it ought not to have been. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm completely wedded to it now. Oh, I I understand it. I really, really understand. Well, also you think, well, what harm does it do to have it on me all the time? If it's going to stop bad things from happening, then, you know. I know, but, you know, you've got to be careful because, you know, ultimately I know it's silly. But at the same time, the anxiety that I feel or have felt... Once I left it um, in a dressing room in, in Manchester and I paid loads of money to get it back. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's bonkers. Well, let's move on to your final object. And this is something that reminds you of home, which actually ties into something from the beginning of the interview. Yeah. Again, you know, first answer is usually the right one. My Chanel number five, if you hear that, let's do this. Oh, that's such a delightful sound. I honestly thought when I arrived here, you had got me this. 
as a little thank you gift. You know, you do these things nowadays. You wonder why celebrities turn into little mini versions of Kim Jong-un. It's because you're right. There's gorgeous people running around to get you tea and they give you free bags of like candles and stuff, which I never take because I think, you know, I've shown up to do an interview, you know. But I really thought as a kindness, as like a leaving present, you had bought me this um, spray of Dettol, which, hang on, oh, that sound. It's like a champagne bottle opening. Yeah. Oh. I, so, bet, I bet you could take it away. I don't think the studio would stop you. Well, it's only, it, it is probably less, it's about a third full. Yeah, that's the thing. Let's notice the optimism in that. It's not two thirds empty. It's a third full. It's a third the full. smell of bleach and cleanliness. That's your thing that <gasps> reminds you of home. Oh, yeah. No, no. Does it remind, it's the happy relationship I have with home. So it's when home is happy. Because there's one character in the book who reminded me of myself, uh, Rupert, who I really like. He's like He's a sweet. real ally yes. from the beginning, isn't he? Yes, very much He's so. a sweet guy. Yeah. He's higher status than Adam, yeah. but he's very kind to him yeah. and he likes him. But it says about his office, every surface was covered in avalanches of paperwork. <laughs> Books were stacked upside down and back to front on shelves. Yeah. A jumble of dirty shoes and a bulging gym bag had been tossed willy-nilly around the desk. Yeah. And you say it's the kind of room that would give Adam's mother a heart attack. Now, you're <laughs> describing lots of rooms in my house, especially the bedrooms. Um, is that the kind of room that would give you a heart attack? I mean, I wouldn't go in. Yeah. I mean, it would absolutely be a problem. Yeah. I do find the more creative the human, in my experience of my friends, the more capable they are of living in a sea, an explosion of human debris. I just don't understand it. Um, well, you're a very creative person, but you're obviously very clean and tidy and ordered. Honestly, like when I was married, I think, you know, part of our divorce was pre no fault and you had to gerrymander and invent reasons why you break up from one another. I mean, it's why no fault divorce is so important nowadays because, you know, these, you know, forms had been faked in effect. Like, well, we just don't love each other anymore and we've grown spiritually apart. Yeah, that's like not, it can't be that. That's not good yeah. enough. <laughs> You know, so you'd have to find a reason. So, you know, I'm certain that at least one of it was um, if my heavenly petio, God, peace be upon her, who comes twice a week to clean, I always make sure I clean before she comes. It's very important. Um, That's such a British thing as well. British, like, yeah. depending on your status. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that... To clean before the Well, making somebody comes. clean your toilet is an act of class violence in the most extreme sense. Of course. Never to expect- clean it first as well. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I have to do that. But he used to cook. I mean, how savage is this? I'm sorry. I don't want to speak about my ex-relationship, but he would cook actual food in the oven before I had got home to experience the waft of bleach. I mean, hashtag domestic hate crime. Oh, gosh. <laughs> There's so many funny bits in the book. There's like, I loved the, I loved Adam's mum. I love that. See, we've got these phone calls. I was worried about her. Oh, no, it's perfect. Oh, um, it, and it, it's like a staccato and legato thing, actually, because you've got the courtroom and then you have the beautiful, the kind of, and she's always saying, oh, you need to find a Jewish girl. You need to eat enough. I'm going to bring you some soup. It's brilliant. Mm. And then it also sheds insight into this secret from the past, which I don't want to reveal yeah, too much no, about. But there's a very serious thing that's, that's gone on. Do you know, my mum, I'm gifted by limitless privilege. And the greatest one of all is to have a mum and family who love me unconditionally and are completely, not just delighted, but unconditionally, again, proud. And so I have the reason I throat clear in that way is because the only bit of the novel I was worried about was those phone calls because... When my mum read it, I was worried she would think it was her. 
Because there is an element of her which is a life, if you like, and a part of the world that my mum sort of, well, very much grew out from. I was worried that she would think it was stereotypical and too much like Maureen Lipman's BT from the adverts. You've got an ology. Oh, yeah, you know, with anology, sure. you can be a scientist, Anthony. He failed all of his GCSEs. Do you remember that advert? <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess I was worried that it would be too much of an archetype and too much of a Jewish mother trope, let's say, and that my mum reading that would perhaps take that personally because Adam is so, as you describe, represents so many aspects of me. But she, of course, is infinitely emotionally rich enough and literate enough to understand it wasn't. But staccato legato thing, that's really true. The staccato thing being... It's interspersed with these moments where we have these telephone calls. And you have to have, and the rules mm. oh, yeah. of the law yeah. have to dictate certain bits of it. Mm. Uh, what I love is the ambiguities within, so there's an affair between someone who works mm. at the court, I think we could say, and a key character. Mm-hmm. And I love seeing their messages as well. That right. felt like a real insight. And then there are also, there are moments that you really dig into those gaps between the robust elements of the court, which I really love. There's a bit where the um, wife of the victim who's been murdered, Grant Cliveden, takes to the stand and she ends up weeping and Adam thinks, it's always through Adam's eyes and that's why he's so brilliant because he sort of goes, oh no, I wonder if this... And he's go, oh, I was wondering that too. But he goes, I don't want the jury to just remember her crying because actually we've asked a really important question and she's yeah. given a really important answer. So you've got all those bits in court with all that going on which I would describe as the staccato bits, mm. just because the rhythm of them sure. is dictated by... Well, it's a rhythm against the... you know the backdrop of the story. You know, the thing about... I love you describing this in classical music terms. I you know, think of all sort of television that I've made in sort of symphonic way. I mean, that's my real passion more than anything, I suppose. So that's a, a gift of a, of a description. But yeah, you know, it's not just getting the sort of breadcrumb right and the character and the narrative and exactly so let's call that the melody but the rhythm is really important as I've come to discover and that's where you have a great editor and why my editor Emily was so important to this whole writing project you know I wanted people also to have the experience of the procedures uh, of the law as well and I would often get really bogged down in that you know write pages about um, bad character applications and uh, she could listen that's great but no one cares you Get to the point. Well, it really felt like it felt like you found out everything you needed to know in a really clear way. But there were no bits that I didn't feel were key. Oh, like, that really is yeah, I, I, and then you did have those moments. And Davina in the yeah. um, in the old <laughs> Bailey canteen, who I think this is one of my favourite moments in the That's book. Real. She offers the judge salad instead of soya milk and acts as if it's essentially the same thing. She just, yeah, it's so it's so funny as well, and it's so it's really really gripping. And I think that you means should a lot be, yeah. to me. And I'm really delighted. And uh, you know, say that colleagues of mine, whose opinions I pretend not to care about, but really do, and uh, you know, who are Casey's, a couple of them judges have read it and have gone, <gasps> God. I hope that's not me. That's not me, is it? Did I? No. <laughs> I mean, the number of people I've said the murder is based on them, just so that they read it and feel slightly sort of worried about the world. Yeah, well, you've got the ultimate power when you've written a novel, haven't you? Because you go, was it you? Or, well, you know, they'll never know. I can't remember what it was. I think it's, um, oh, God, who wrote Biloxi Blues? The playwright who come back to me in a second, but um, it's going to really annoy me. There's a, whoever the playwright who was, who wrote Biloxi Blues, um, there's this sort of character who's seemingly effeminate who we subsequently discover 
goes on to become the main prosecutor of the mafia. It's really interesting. And he's beaten up by somebody or he's pushed to the floor and he looks up to him and he says, just so you know, one day I'm going to eviscerate you in fiction. <laughs> I just think that's... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that, it's a really interesting, when you look at the number of writers, you know, and that capacity that you have, I mean, here we go, compare yourself to sort of Austin and stuff. It's a really interesting, when you are an outsider or have imposter syndrome, there is this sense of power that you have to be able wholly to chisel and curate a character. And if you've been wronged in some way, or if, you know, somebody is perhaps not necessarily emotionally aware that you can write a novel that, will endure and um, answer any of the experiences you've had at their hand through your pen, that's a pretty powerful thing to do. Absolutely, because you feel you've got the right to write about them because you're in that world, but there's an element of you that's mm. that slightly stepped back from it so you can see it all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been so brilliant it's been to, talk to, to talk to you. It's been absolutely lovely. And thank you, because I know you've got a real whistle stop. No, it's lovely. Then, thank you. And thank yeah. you for saying such kind things. I hope people buy it. I reread it the other day before coming here. You, you need some time. It's a bit like the end of a relationship, <laughs> you know, before coming back to it. Or any work, I think, really, to sort of see it at arm's length a little bit. And I don't think it's arrogant to say, I really enjoyed it. Even though I knew what happened, I think there's just, it's a good who done it and lots of character. And I think, I hope people, as you describe, really invest in Adam and want to know what happens next, which I'm excited by. I'm sure everyone will be. And also, it's a very warm book. It really welcomes you in with open arms. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening wherever you are. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. To make sure Neil you Simon. Miss... Sorry. Neil Simon. There yes. we go. Sugar. And Neil Simon. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, it was on the tip of my tongue as well. Sorry. There we go. I know you would have felt you <laughs> the whole night. Yes, it, I would have um, Please leave us a nice review if you're enjoying listening. It helps get the word out. It helps other people to find us. Um, and finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or see who else we've spoken to, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time.